I've never been scuba diving. I don't know if any of you have. I suspect some of you must have. It sounds like a lot of fun. But uh, I don't think I would like the uh, experience that is described in this story by this writer. He had a conversation with a former Navy diver about diving deep, uh, really deep, so deep, the diver told him that he had been in situations where uh, it was so dark that he couldn't even see his hand in front of his face down there diving and you become very disoriented he said when you're and confused when you're down that deep in the water and you cannot see anything so the writer asked him well what did you do when you're in that situation the diver said you feel the bubbles when it's pitch black and you have no idea which way to go you reach up with your hand You feel around until you can feel the bubbles because the bubbles always drift to the surface so then you know which way is up. When you can't trust your feelings, the diver said, or judgment, you can always trust the bubbles to get you back to the top. The promises of God for a Christian are like bubbles to the scuba diver. They show us the way up and out of the problems we face. So when you're confused, when you're disoriented in this life, when you don't know which way is up, go to the promises of God in his Bible, and that will tell you which direction to go in life. God's promises, you see, anchor our souls to his hope. The rainbow, of course, is the symbol of the promises of God. God gave the rainbow to Noah as the promise in Genesis chapter 9 that he would never again destroy this earth by a flood. And God has kept that promise, hasn't he? He has never again wiped out the inhabitants of this earth by a flood. And the rainbow is the symbol of that promise. Now, there are many other promises of God in the Bible. And... We can trust God's promises because we know God's character. We are in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We're picking up in our study with Hebrews 6 and verse 13. Let's read verses 13 through 16. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. And I have the feeling that I'm really echoing in here, so I'm not sure what you need to do back there, Isaac, but... If I let loose, I'm going to blow us all out of here, I think. (laughs) I don't want to do that, you know. (laughs) All right, Abraham. Abraham is chosen as the classic illustration of a faith that trusted God's promises because he trusted God's character. Now, the quotation that is used here in this verse is actually from Genesis chapter 22 and verses 15 through 18. And that is actually the story of Abraham sacrificing or 
putting his son Isaac on the altar to sacrifice him in obedience to God's command. God had called Abraham. He had told him to go to Mount Moriah. You remember the story. And he had told him, you bind your only son, the son of promise now, on the altar to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham did all that. And of course, as, as soon as Abraham obeyed God to the point of binding his only son on the altar, God provided a ram in his place. And so the son was saved and Abraham sacrificed the ram. And then God said these words that are quoted here in the book of Hebrews. God said, he swore by himself. He promised to bless Abraham with an increase beyond all increase. He promised to bless him and his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in heaven because of his faith in God. Now, of course, that was actually a repeat, wasn't it, of the promise that, Abraham, that God had made to Abraham many, many years earlier before Isaac was ever born. When Abram, and I, when Abram and Sarah were too old to have children, God had come to him in Genesis 12 and he had made a promise to Abraham that he would make his descendants like the sand of the seashore and like the stars in the sky. So God had promised Abraham all of that, and this was really a reaffirmation of God's promise to Abraham and to Sarah. They trusted God, and he had given them a son, the son of promise. And then God said, now you sacrifice that son on the altar. So they went through with that, and they trusted God again. They obeyed God. He tested their faith, and they obeyed him by faith. And God said the promise all over again. So because of Abraham's endurance, it says, he obtained the promise. That's one of the themes we've seen in the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Endurance receives the promise. And enduring faith enjoys the fulfillment of the promise in our lives. Continuance is the test of reality. Real faith is an enduring faith. It goes through all of those struggles. It goes through all of those hard times and continues to trust God all the way to the end. That's real faith. And God will fulfill His promises. We can trust His promises even when what we must do and I'm sure Abraham felt this way, even when what we must do seems to contradict everything we know about God. I mean, sacrifice your son on the altar, that contradicts everything we would know about God, wouldn't it? And even when we have to do that, or come to that point, we can trust God's character. We look at God's promises then, and at our circumstances. And... What we must not do when we look at our circumstances and God's promises and they contradict one another or they seem to, what we must not do is we must not trust our circumstances over God's promises and conclude that, well, God must be wrong, right? We must trust God's promises over our circumstances and believe that even though we can't understand it, even though we don't see the answers, we can trust God's character. We know that he will be faithful no matter what. So God's character then, his nature as a promise-keeping God, is the foundation of our faith. And that's why God said here, I swore by myself this promise to you, Abraham. 
Now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13 says, All these people, including Abraham, because he's just discussed Abraham in Hebrews 11, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Does Hebrews 11.13 contradict Hebrews 6.15? Hebrews 6.15 said that Abraham endured and obtained the promise. Hebrews 11.13 later says Abraham did not receive the promises. Those sound contradictory, don't they? But they do not contradict one another. How then could the author in chapter 6 say that Abraham obtained the promise, and in chapter 11 he says that Abraham and all the others did not receive the promise? The answer is that there are two different levels of this Abrahamic promise. And Hebrews, if you haven't caught on by now, likes to use these metaphors, these figures of speech, to take us to a whole different level. And they're doing, the author of Hebrews is doing that with, with, with respect to the promise here. The first level, of course, is the level of Isaac. God told Abraham that he would have a son, and Abraham obtained that promise by faith. Isaac was born. Isaac was saved by the ram. The second level is the level of Christ. The promise went actually far beyond Isaac to the coming Messiah as the seed of Abraham. Abraham never received that part of the promise. In Hebrews 11, the heavenly country of Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And that Abraham never received in his life. So the two verses don't contradict one another. They only expand the promise to be much deeper than Abraham fully understood in his day. But he still lived by faith in the hope of that eternal promise in the new world that Christ would bring. So God's promises to Abraham were founded upon God's character as a promise-keeping God. And the passage says that God swore an oath by himself that he would give Abraham all that he had promised to Abraham. This was a unilateral oath. It was an unconditional oath. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and you read the story in the ancient world when they swore an oath to one another, they cut the animals in two and they would say, may God do thus to you if you break your end of the bargain. And it would be a bilateral covenant. Both people would make that agreement, that contract. Wouldn't that be interesting if we signed our contracts that way today? You know, cut this animal in two and now you know what happens to you if you break the covenant. (laughs) Well, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is put into a deep sleep by God. You see, what they would do in the ancient world, they would, when they signed a contract, they would cut the animal in two and then both parties would walk between the two halves of the animal, signing the covenant in the blood of the animal. Well, in Genesis 12, God put Abraham to sleep. And who walked between the two halves of the animal? God alone. Only God. This is a unilateral, unconditional, forever covenant. Never to be broken, for only God could break it. Abraham didn't even sign it. He didn't even walk through those animal carcasses. 
And God says, I swore by myself. My oath was on me. And this is my promise to you. So, oaths. When we swear oaths, and we still do today, the Jews swore oaths. They swore oaths by heaven. I swear by heaven, I swear by earth, I swear by the temple, I swear by my head. All kinds of oaths. But you swear by something greater than yourself, the author of Hebrews says. Humans swear oaths by some power greater than themselves. Why? Because the power greater than themselves is supposed to back the promise that you're making. So, whenever we're in a dispute, the author of Hebrews says, the oath is intended to end or conclude that dispute. Because an oath invokes a higher power that will judge us if we do not carry out the word of the oath. Now, we stand in courtrooms today, and we take oaths today to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? That's an oath sworn by a higher power, the ultimate power to back the integrity of what we are saying. Law professor Stephen Carter, in his book on integrity, says that he used to open every contract law class that he taught with an illustration. And that was that back in medieval England, when you swore an oath by God regarding something in a courtroom, it ended the trial. There was no trial after that. Why? Because when anybody invoked the oath of God, they assumed that God would do thus and so to that person. So... No need to have a trial to test the oath. If you, by God, swear that what you are telling me is true, there's no need of a trial. So there were no trials after an oath was taken in the name of God. He says to his contract law students, do we do that today? Well, no, of course not. Why, he said. Well, they don't know. He said, I'll tell you why, because our culture has totally changed. We do not believe in a God who backs the oath. They believed in a God who backed the oath. So once the oath was taken, trial's over. Today, we take an oath, so help me God, and then we take a trial to test whether the oath is true. Because we assume it isn't true and must be tested by trial. Our culture has changed, he said, totally. We do not believe in a God who stands behind the oath anymore. We swear then by a power greater than ourselves. But there is no power greater than God, is there? Truly. So God stooped to accommodate man by swearing an oath, but God swore by himself, for there is no power greater than God. God stood behind his own oath. His nature, his character was the ground of his word. Our culture may not believe that, but as Christians we do. That's why the New Testament says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Because God stands behind it. We can trust then whatever God says here and certainly whatever God says on his own oath for God is by nature a promise-keeping God and he stands behind his own oath. 
And so we can trust him to handle whatever is coming our way. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom, who of course ended up in a Nazi prison camp, tells of an event that took place when she was 10 or 12 years old as she traveled with her father on a train from Amsterdam to Harlem. She had stumbled upon a poem that had the words sex sin in it, in the poem. And so seated next to her father in the train compartment, she turned to him and she asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at her, she said, as he always did when answering a question, but to her surprise, he said nothing. At last he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over their heads, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He asked. She stood up and tugged with all of her little ten-year-old might, and she couldn't move it. It's too heavy, she said. It was, by the way, filled with watches and spare parts and all kinds of things that he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, she said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. She writes, And I was satisfied. More than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. It is ever more so with our Heavenly Father, isn't it? There are questions we ask, certainly, that we do not understand. Folks, there are answers to all those questions safely in His keeping. And we can be content always to trust God's keeping of our answers until we need them until we are able to bear them. For he is a promise-keeping God. We can be encouraged then, secondly, because we know God's purpose. Verses 17 and 18. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness, the immutability of his purpose, interposed, the word literally means guaranteed, with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. All right, we are heirs of the promise, he says. The heirs extended way beyond Abraham's descendants. The promise extends way beyond the promise of Isaac. The promise is Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he established. This is a kingdom beyond the earth. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We will read later in the book of Hebrews. And we are waiting for this heavenly country will be the whole argument of chapters 11 and 12 near the end of Hebrews. And we have it in Christ 
for he has prepared it for us, and we receive it by faith. So the purpose of God is to establish a new world where we will live forever with him. We are heirs of this heavenly promise in Christ. And that is what we find to be the focus of the promise in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 gives us this statement. Instead, he says, they, Abraham and all the others, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He will call this country an unshakable kingdom in chapter 12 of Hebrews. We have a promise, and the promise relates to this new world, this heavenly kingdom, this unshakable kingdom. That's our ultimate promise. That's our hope. And the vision of every believer must be focused on the unshakable kingdom of Christ. God is working toward this new world where we, where we will live forever with Him. We are heirs of this promise, and God has guaranteed this promise with two unchangeable things, He says. The word translated interposed means to guarantee. In fact, it's actually a legal term drawn from the first century world. If there was a dispute, a courtroom matter to be decided, originally it would be decided by mediation. But if not by mediation, then by oath. They would take an oath to settle it. So in order to demonstrate, to show us the absolute certainty of this promise, God took an oath by himself. God guaranteed this promise by his oath. The kingdom is under warranty for you. And for me. And so he guaranteed the promise by two unchangeable, immutable things. What are they? Well, the two unchangeable things are God's promise and God's oath. Neither one can be changed. Why? Because God cannot lie, it is outside of his nature, it is impossible for God to lie. You realize that there are things that are impossible for God to do. And one of those is it is impossible for him to, to, die, to lie. Paul in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that we Christians live in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Same principle. If God is incapable of lying and he promises by an oath on his own nature that we will inherit his eternal promise of a new covenant, new country, excuse me, founded in Christ, then there is no reason ever to doubt that promise, is there? We have a strong, powerful encouragement from this double affirmation that we will inherit the promised land. Then, of course, we find another metaphor from ancient Israel used in this argument. He talks about fleeing to the cities of refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. In ancient Israel, there were certain cities of refuge. There were certain cities set aside as cities of refuge. 
And when a person was accused of a crime and fearful of revenge by somebody else, they would run to the city of refuge. And when they arrived at the city of refuge, they were safe. Why? Because in the city of refuge, no one could touch them. It was a city of refuge. And once inside the city, the person was protected from revenge. He could protect his life as long as he remained in the city. So as Christians, he says, we are to flee to the cities of refuge, and we are to lay hold of the hope. The laying hold of the hope means literally to seize the hope, to grab it and hang on for dear life. This is what a person would do in an ancient city of refuge. The hope that is set before us is the promise of God for our new country, and we can seize this hope and hang on to it throughout our lives. God has guaranteed our safety by His purpose to establish His eternal unshakable kingdom, and we are safe in His purpose as long as we seize that hope. Pastor Lee Eklove told about someone who once gave him a little cross adorned with roses. And the cross bore the inscription, Hope raises no dust. Anybody know what that means? Neither did he. But he didn't want to look stupid in front of the person who gave it to him, so he didn't say anything. Hope raises no dust. He thought about it some more, and he thought, well... I don't want to look stupid and ask, but it is on a cross, and you would assume that it has some significant meaning. So what in the world does that mean? And so he Googled it. He Googled, hope raises no dust. And he found out that it was actually originally uttered by Paul Eluard, a French poet associated with Dadaism. When he looked up Dadaism, he found this definition. The Dada movement tried to express the negation of all current aesthetic and social values and frequently used deliberately incomprehensible artistic and literary methods. Dada poets were non-poets. Dada writers were non-writers. Dada painters were non-artists. They were into negation through ambiguity. And so they would create these sayings that meant nothing, but sounded like they meant something. For example, you would read in Dada writings, elephants are contagious. Hmm, wonder what that means. Or, earth is blue like an orange. Or, hope raises no dust. It's an intentionally meaningless statement. It was their commentary on the meaninglessness of life. Dadaism was prevalent in the early part of the 1900s. But folks, that's often the way it is when people talk about hope, isn't it? It is a meaningless hope. It is vague. It is nothing. It is, hmm, I hope so, right? Not Christian hope, right? Not Christian hope. Christian hope is not intentionally vague, not meaningless. Christian hope is grounded in fact. It is founded on promise. It is built upon the very nature of God himself. 
The Christian is certain because God is unchangeable. The reliability of the Christian hope is found in the reliability of God himself. So this is not Dadaistic hope. It is real, solid, certain, fixed. Thomas Aquinas said, God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of reason. Our hope is beyond reasons many times. We do not understand what we are going through. But it is not beyond certainty, you see. God destines us. We may not see the end or even understand fully the end of God's purpose for our lives, but we can be encouraged because we know that our hope is certain in the promise of God. He destines us for this eternity. And thirdly, we can feel secure because we know God's solution. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Ah, we're finally back to Melchizedek, right? All this time, he's taken this big parenthesis, you see, because as we learned back in chapter 5 and verse 11, they weren't ready to deal with anything substantial in the Word of God, in terms of truth of God, because they had reverted to baby food, basically. And he's going to get us back to Melchizedek, and that comes in the next chapter. But... You see, he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, sure, steadfast, and one which enters inside the veil. That's our hope. God has a plan A. He has no plan B. There's no contingency plan with God. There doesn't have to be. God has a solution to all that ails this world, and his solution is perfect. And who is the solution? It's Jesus Christ. This hope is an anchor for our souls no matter what the storms of life throw at us. We are anchored securely in this certain hope found in our Savior Jesus Christ. And the hope is not a meaningless hope. It's not a vague hope. The hope is described here with three statements. First, the hope is sure or certain, secure. Second, the hope is reliable. Or the word would mean unmovable, steadfast. These statements are relatively easily understood. We understand what something, when something is certain and it's reliable and this hope is reliable and it is sure, it is certain. God has a plan A. He does not have a plan B and we can rest in his plan A when everything goes wrong with our lives, with our plans for life. We can feel secure because we know that God's solution is a reliable solution for our needs and he will take care of the problem. Arlene called me last night and told me that it had been a very, very rough time for Chuck. But she said she was really moved by what he said. He said, God brought this into my life and he'll take care of it. That's plan A, folks. God's in control. No matter what we're facing in life. 
Our hope is secure. It is sure. It is solid. It is reliable. God brought it into our lives. He'll take care of us. Third, the hope enters inside the veil or within the veil. By now you've understood that Hebrews loves these metaphors, right? Our hope takes us inside the veil. What did that refer to? Well, the word was used of the veil in the temple of God that separated what? The Holy of Holies from the inner place, the sanctuary, or from the outer holies of place to the inner sanctuary of God where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God met with his people. That's the veil. The innermost sanctuary of God was behind that veil, was behind that curtain. The inner sanctuary then in Hebrews becomes a metaphor for heaven and the heavenly sanctuary. The ancient temple, of course, we will learn later in Hebrews, was patterned actually after the heavenly temple that we don't see. And so our hope, he says, actually enters into that heavenly sanctuary. We can enter the inner sanctuary of God by our hope in his promise. How does that work? Well, the author goes on to say that Christ as our forerunner has already entered that heavenly sanctuary. He's already gone beyond the veil. He's inside. He died, he rose again, and now he's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in the heavenly sanctuary. There's there's no end to his high priesthood. He's already entered that. So we can enter with him by faith in him as our perfect solution for sin. That's our hope in Christ. There's a plan A, obviously. There's no need for plan B or C or D or any other contingency plan with God. He is our forerunner. The, the word was used of military scouts that were sent out to scout out the area. They went ahead of the army and then the army came behind them. Christ has gone ahead of us and we're going there. But our hope is already there because he is already there. And that's why we can feel secure in whatever we're facing. We live in turbulent economic times, don't we? And a sad reminder of the vulnerability of our money came with the June 2009 news story of an elderly woman in Israel who had hidden her life savings of one million dollars in her bed mattress. Every night she slept on one million in American dollars and Israeli shekels. She must have felt very secure with her fortune literally inches away holding her up every night. Especially since, of course, 2008 and 2009 were very bad years for the the worldwide, the global banking and financial industry. What's more, she had had a very bad experience with the bank, and so she'd lost trust in all of those financial institutions. Whom could you trust? No one. She didn't even tell her own daughter, which proved to be a big mistake. One day, her daughter decided that the mother needed a new mattress. I don't know, maybe she came, tried to, why, mom's sleeping on this awful mattress, this lumpy old thing, filled with a million dollars, but lumpy. So she decided to replace the mattress as a surprise to her elderly mother. 
She wanted to present the new mattress as a surprise, so the new mattress was delivered without her mother's knowledge, and the old lumpy mattress was taken away to the garbage. Somehow, her elderly mother did not put two and two together right away, and after a night of sleep in her new mattress, though, she woke up and realized what had happened to her life savings. She literally screamed. A video news report of this story showed the daughter walking through a garbage dump hunting for this lost mattress. News reports showed workers combing through the trash as bulldozers moved piles of garbage, attempting to uncover the lost treasure. We like to think that we can control our own destinies, don't we? We want to be in charge of our own future. And we find out that we cannot even make plans for tomorrow that will stand with certainty. No one, no one in this room, no one, can be certain about your plans for tomorrow. Much less your bank account, your retirement, your financial future. No one here can be certain of that. We make plans all the time, hopefully wise ones, but we cannot be certain of any of those plans because everything is changeable and adjusted by reality because we are human. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. When Paul wrote those words, he was explaining why his plans had changed in 2 Corinthians 1. He had intended to come visit the Corinthians and he had to change his plans because of circumstances. And so the Corinthians were upset. You know, Paul, you're always changing your plans. And he says, yes, I'm human. We adjust, we have to change. But I can tell you this, with God, with Christ, there's only yes. There's never yes and no and we, you know, always changing. With God, his message is always yes. In Christ, we can find absolute certainty and faithfulness. In Christ, our hope is secure in his yes for all of eternity. We don't have to worry about our future based upon the selfish whims and fickle plans of other humans. Even like me, Paul says. In Christ, we can be secure. God, again, does not have anything but plan A. And our security rests in Christ and Christ alone for all of eternity. Do you believe that? I hope so. I hope so. The massive earthquake that rocked Haiti has caught all of our attention, of course. Tragedy, suffering, all kinds of things happening there that are horrible. It's, the devastation is, is, um, is intense. But as often is the case in extreme trials, 
There are also remarkable stories that come out, and we're starting to hear some of these stories coming out of those experiences and, those, and all of that rubble. Dan Woolley is one of those stories. A film producer, Woolley, was in Haiti working on a documentary about the country's starving children when the earthquake hit. He was inside the Hotel Montana when the shaking started and the building collapsed before he could reach the street. When it was over, he found himself in the hotel basement among tons of fallen debris. Woolley was trapped with only the clothes on his back and an iPhone in his pocket. And this isn't a commercial for an iPhone. Fortunately, though, his iPhone had a medical application that came in pretty handy. Using the light from the phone and the instructions from the app, Willie was able to correctly diagnose a broken foot and use strips of clothing to bandage severe gashes he had suffered on his legs and the back of his head. Then he used the camera feature on the phone to get a map of his surroundings and the hotel plan and plan a route to an elevator shaft that was protected from the falling debris. More than 65 hours after the earthquake, Dan Woolley was rescued by emergency personnel. But it wasn't his quick thinking or the handy gadgets that make this story important. Dan Woolley is a Christian. And he told reporters after his rescue that he genuinely thought he was going to die in that basement. So he wrote a note to his wife and children, reminding them to trust God, even in the midst of the world's worst situations. I was in a big accident, the note said to his kids. Don't be upset at God. He always provides for his children, even in hard times. I'm still praying that God will get me out, he wrote his children. He may not, but he will always take care of you. That's the message we have from Hebrews. God is faithful. Father, help us to trust in your faithfulness. Maybe we don't face the big stuff having to lie in a hotel basement for 65 hours wondering if we would ever live. Maybe we don't face that this week. But, Father, we know that you are always faithful and we can trust you to take care of us now and, more importantly, forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 